This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, science journalist Deborah McKenzie reports on how COVID-19 became a global pandemic and offers her thoughts on how to prevent future outbreaks. She's interviewed by Georgetown University Center for Global Health professor Claire Stanley. Okay, well, thank you so much for being here, um, Deborah McKenzie. It's really an honor to uh, to be conducting this interview. I've read much of your work in The New Scientist over the years, and so I was really delighted to get this invitation uh, to read your book, which I understand is the first that you've done in this way. Is that right? First book I've ever written, yeah. Gosh, amazing. And, and of course, it must have been challenging to uh, create such a factual account of uh, a pandemic while it's ongoing. Can you just uh, talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, I can understand why people will think, well, why are you writing about this now? It hasn't happened yet, in effect. Um, I'm writing about the things that we can write about now. I deliberately took a step back. I'm not writing about things as they unfold. I'm not railing about this or that misstep by this or that government. I'm not talking on that level at all. I suppose a few people will be disappointed by that. But what I'm doing is standing back and saying, okay, why a pandemic? Why now? And that's something I could do really quickly because if you've been reading my work in New Scientist, you know, um, I, like many other people, have been writing about this for years. Um, we've been saying this is going to happen. These are the viruses we need to worry about. This is what we need to do. And, you know, it's, it's already so obvious that those predictions were smack on. Um, and, you know, and we hadn't done a lot of the things we needed to do. So this was kind of the moment to repeat all that stuff at a time when people can really understand it. Uh, and it will really make sense to them and that therefore the message might really come home to the right people. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, that, that point about emphasizing the past warnings about pandemics came through really strongly throughout the book and, and particularly how political leaders have frequently overlooked these opportunities that were presented to them previously for investing in preparedness. And, and I just want to read one quote, which really um, I thought was very enlightening. It's almost as if rich countries are interested in riding to the rescue in emergencies, but not preventing the disease emergence that causes emergencies in the first place. I wonder if you could, it almost sounded colonial to me or had colonial overtones. You know, was that something that came to you as you were writing the book? Well, an awful lot of the way the international order is managed these days is, is kind of post-colonial. Um, but I think it's a deeper issue than that. Perfect, pre prevention is not, in a word, very sexy. Um, going in and stopping something from happening. I mean, you know, people in public health, they're always complaining. You know, when we succeed, people wonder what we're there for because nothing happens. You know, prevention just doesn't attract a lot of attention. Whereas it's so obvious that it's way cheaper than cure. It's been estimated that 2% of what it's costing us to handle this, this pandemic, um, and I think that's probably an overestimate. If it had been invested in what we knew to be good preventive measures, would have stopped this happening in the first place. And then people would be saying, what are we spending this money on? I mean, there were people, for example, the city of Toronto uh, and uh, the city um, of Los Angeles. Los Angeles didn't go through SARS in 2003, Toronto did. But both of them took the warning and both of them um, put together stashes of, of ventilators for in case they were ever hit by a disease that caused pneumonia and required a lot of people to go on ventilators. Um, Los Angeles hit a budget crisis a few years ago and said, what are we keeping this stuff around for? And got rid of it. So now it doesn't have ventilators, it's got a shortage. Toronto still had its. And I wonder how many people over the years, 
attacked the city government and said, what the hell are we spending money on these ventilators for? We got rid of SARS. Yeah, well, SARS came back even worse. Yeah, and of course, as you mentioned also in the book, there's the challenge of the um, false alarms. You know, a sensitive surveillance system is going to bring up instances of disease that actually don't go anywhere. And so part of the challenge, of course, is balancing those against the threat of the, the true pandemic that's coming, of course. And so how do you think political leaders can, can walk that line? Well, um, they spend a lot on various kinds of insurance already. Uh, what is the chance that we are going to be hit with an overwhelming nuclear attack? Um, why do we need to renew our nuclear defenses very expensively to guard against it? There seems to be very few questions that that is necessary. And when I say we, I mean the nuclear powers. But, um, you know, that costs a vast amount more than investing in a few vaccines. Um, that's insurance. People will say to you, um, well, I say, okay, if you, if you buy fire insurance and your house doesn't burn down, do you go to the insurance company and say, hey, I want my money back? Mm -hmm. you know? uh, it's, it's similar. I think people just did not see this as a risk. Um, as I go into in the book, um, people have gotten out of the habit of seeing infectious disease as really being the risk um, yeah. that it is. And, and they sort of go, you know, a pandemic isn't happening now. I've got a, a, a chunk of money here. I can spend it on something. Is there going to be a pandemic next year? Well, no, but we, will, we know there's going to be one sometime, and it's going to be very, very bad. Yes, but this is one of those, well, I, I hesitate to say low probability, high impact events. That's what risk experts call it. If, if you know, you might get a, a, a catastrophic um, explosion in, in, in your port, like Beirut just had, who would have predicted that a week ago? Um, if, if, you, if you might get other things, a massive flu pandemic at the same time as the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, those things are in the realm of possibility, but nobody can say if they are going to happen. Just that if they do happen, the impact's going to be huge. Well, how do you convince someone who has got to spend a limited pot of money to set some aside for that risk when you can't even quantify the risk, the likelihood that that risk will happen within the lifespan of this budget? You can't do that. And so that's the first one to go by the, by, by, by the side. You, you cannot predict when this is coming. You can say that it's coming, but you can't give policymakers the kinds of tools they typically need to make budget decisions. I think now that we've all seen what this can do, hopefully that, you know, arm waving and saying, it's going to happen sometime, um, will maybe be a bit more effective. One can but hope. One can but hope, and, and you mentioned, you know, of course, that some political leaders have started to make statements about how important these things are and have invested in, in a, an array of different approaches towards better preparedness and that, you know, the, to quote the G20, which you referenced in the book at one point is, you know, increasing research and development for, for medicines and vaccines, leveraging digital technologies, uh, rapid development, manufacturing and distribution of diagnostics, assessing gaps in preparedness and response. So, so where do you start? I mean, which is the most important of these activities to focus on? I think the most important thing would be for the G20 to follow through on the meeting that it said it would hold in order to enact some of those pledges. It really did its homework. Um, there are a number of things we need to do, obviously. I don't think it's a mystery. Um, but they said, we will hold a meeting of health and finance ministers in the coming months. This was a statement made in March to discuss this. And the statement was brilliant. They had really done their homework. They really went to, I don't know, maybe Brundtland and, and her team asked them, what should we be asking for it? It was, it was a pretty comprehensive list and it was all the right things. Um, and, you know, I have yet, to, I, in fact, I was just on the, the G20 website a minute ago to see if anything had changed. It hasn't. 
Um, I've heard some scuttlebutt that maybe that meeting's happening in September, but I don't see it scheduled anywhere yet. And there is one point that they didn't hit. Um, one of the things that COVID has really brought home um, is that national sovereignty still rules unchallenged in international health management. Um, China said to the WHO, we've got this infection, but it doesn't spread human to human. And the WHO could not then say, great, we'll be there tomorrow. And we'll sit and we'll talk to your technical experts. And usually when technical experts get together, the truth comes out. That's what happened with SARS. When they mm -hmm. let the WHO in and the doctors in Beijing started talking, oh, all of a sudden, uh, actually, yeah, we have had more deaths than that. You know, it just came out. If you have your technical experts getting together, and especially if you've been holding confidence building measures um, and, and they're used to talking to each other, the truth comes out. We need some mechanism to do that. As it was, the WHO couldn't go in. China would say, we've got it. You know, you don't have the right to, to come in. This is our disease. Um, yeah, except it's the whole planet that's at risk. So, you know, when there's shared risk, there has to be shared responsibility. And there is currently no way of ensuring that. Now, China, I think, suffered mightily from having delayed um, admitting that this thing spread person to person, because as long as it didn't admit that, it couldn't institute infection control measures in Wuhan. And in the, in the end, on the 20th of January, when they finally did admit it, they had to shut the city down, which must yeah. have been horrendous. And some of us have been through that ourselves now. Um, basically, I think we should all know that we're all in this together. We all need to share response. We need to, you know, share information. We cannot leave it to the whims or, or the governing proclivities of different countries, whatever they are, to be in charge of responding to these things. It's not just China that keeps things quiet. As you know, as a public health expert, the international health regulations, the only treaty we got governing this, um, came into being because back in the 1800s, port cities were not telling people when they had cholera outbreaks and yeah. ships were sailing into them and discovering they couldn't sail out again because nobody else would have them because they'd been in a cholera port. I mean, and there was some sort of effort to get people to share information on cholera outbreaks for that reason. And there was so much resistance to that from all the major powers at the time that it took them decades to reach a decision. I mean, this is an old problem. Humans have trouble talking about disease, but we've yeah. got to find out a way to do that that is not held hostage to national sovereignty. I mean, it's a transnational risk. It's a global risk. It has to be subject to some kind of global governance. We could do that with the existing international health regulations. We just tweak them a bit, I think, and I suggest a method in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, all of this happening against the backdrop of increasing nationalism and, and distrust in multilateral organizations, which of course is not going to help um, the cause in terms of finding the right bodies that can help to drive this process. So you, know, you speak about the WHO at length, of course, within the book, since there's such a key player both in this and, and okay. pandemic preparedness efforts. So, you know, given where we are now and, and the events of the last few weeks, even so since the book came out, what can the WHO do to actually bolster its own um, efforts in this space, and, and particularly with, with the threat of the U.S. withdrawing, or in fact the, the U.S.'s withdrawal, announcement of withdrawal, and, and the general lack of trust that it's, it's facing now? Well, the WHO can't do anything until the member states let it do something. As people always say, the WHO is its member states, and they have never given it the authority to override national governance in these issues. Um, they've never given it enough of a budget to do very much, although it does what it can with what it's got. Um, I think we've all seen now that we actually need 
some sort of global coordination in the management of these issues. And the member states, it's their, it's their game, it's their power. They've got to do this. They've got to pool their own sovereignty in a way that will allow them to collectively do this. And it is not beyond their capability. They collectively manage nuclear materials through the International Atomic Energy Agency. There is an inspection regime there, which everybody is subject to. They give up enough sovereignty that they have all said, we will declare how much fissionable material we've got. We will declare the, 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 cap the capability we've got for enriching uh, nuclear fuels, possibly making bomb materials, and you can come and inspect us and see if we're telling the truth. Under the Chemical Weapons Convention, we declare that we have the following chemical plants that could conceivably make nerve gas. If you want to come in and check that we're not doing it, you can come anytime. You know, mm -hmm. we can be subject to an inspection along those lines anytime because we want to make sure that our neighbors aren't doing it too. So everybody has declared that's okay in their own interest. Well, disease is a much worse risk. Why yeah. don't we have declarations under the international health regulations? We already have a requirement for that, for any novel disease that might threaten um, people internationally. Why don't we have a declaration, a, a requirement under the international health regulations that countries declare what diseases they've got? And then mm -hmm. two things. One, if they've got a novel disease, that WHO can say, great, we'll be there tomorrow. And the member states have kindly given me enough of a budget that I've got some inspectors and I can come in and do that. And we can see what you've got and we can talk about it and everybody can be in this together from the start. Two, if a country says, oh, I don't have any novel disease, the WHO can say, how good is your surveillance? How do you know that? Now, if a country says, some of the poorest countries in the world, say, I don't have any polio, the WHO says, great, how many diseases similar to polio have you diagnosed in the past year? And if you've diagnosed as many as you should have had, we know you're looking hard enough. And if you haven't diagnosed very many, you're not looking hard enough. You don't know you don't have any polio. Let's work together on improving that capability. And they have done that in all the countries in Africa. Um, they could do it now for general surveillance. And if there is one thing we need that all the experts say, as I'm sure you know, we need more than anything else, it's surveillance. That was the one thing that G20 declaration didn't mention. It mentioned yeah. we'll figure out ways of getting vaccines and diagnostics and, and, and tests to people. That's great. That is really good. But it should also figure out um, a way of, of somehow getting us together on, on surveillance, um, making sure people can watch for diseases. One of the problems is that there, these diseases are mostly viruses that jump from animals to humans, that is mostly going to happen in the places with the most animals, which is the tropics. And a lot of those countries are not very wealthy. China is, and it managed to take a while to see that it had a problem. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not easy. So, you know, we need to work on surveillance. We really need to get that together. And we could do it under a treaty that is not unlike treaties we have already all signed up to. Yeah, and I think the, the parallels with the nuclear and chemical regimes is very powerful, right? We talk about these other types of weapons and they have verification protocols. And so, you know, having something parallel challenges with that in the biological weapons convention context um, through disagreements between certain uh, powerful states. Um, but uh, we know, yes, well, and coming back to the idea of surveillance also, you know, I think there is that these are not new lessons, you know, the, the idea of strengthening surveillance systems really stemmed, I mean, it's, it's gone on for decades, but I think was so was most recently highlighted, of course, in West Africa in 20, 2014, totally. with the break response, right? And yep. so again, these are things that have been in the works for, and, and I just wanted to mention on that, on that note, so, um, 
when it comes to strengthening systems, you know, to what extent is the World Health Organization empowered to make these kinds of decisions and to what, how much buy-in is needed from, from countries to do so? Well, um, to the extent um, that the WHO is, is a totally chronically underfunded organization, given what member states have asked it to do, it's actually accomplished some miracles in the last few years mm -hmm. after Ebola. You know, people blame the WHO for slow reaction there. And yes, its institutional structure did contribute to that. Um, the total absence of surveillance in West Africa was, as you say, the main problem, really. The WHO maybe gets a little bit too much stick, but yeah, it was slow. There was just one guy in the wrong place who didn't jump at the right time. This happens in an organization that's running on a skeleton staff with a skeleton budget. But given that that's the case, oh yeah, given that that's the case, after Ebola, it totally reinvented itself as a global emergency response organization for disease outbreak, which it had never been before. It was out there to sit with countries and say, okay, this is how you should be doing your vaccination program. We think this drug works okay. Um, you know, we will pre-approve this vaccine that your people have developed. That kind of nice, long, slow, standard-setting stuff. It was never an ambulance chaser or even an ambulance driver. And it reinvented itself as one after Ebola. And let's not forget that was only six years ago. So, you know, it's done a good job there. Um, but at the same time, you know, after um, 2008, uh, it, it had a huge cut in its budget. Mm -hmm. um, now it's losing the states for, for, frankly, reasons that do not make sense, in my view and the view of a lot of other people. Um, and, you know, that's just putting all of us at more risk because, frankly, you can criticize the WHO. I'm a journalist. I do it all the time. They know that, you know. We're supposed to do that. Um, but it's the only game in town. It's mm -hmm. if you want a global collaborative effort to control the very real risk of pandemic disease, the WHO is where you have to start because it's, it's really the only agency we've got. And frankly, I don't think it's done that bad with this. I just, yeah, and I suppose there is always the question that, you know, should WHO be the ambulance chaser or the ambulance driver? Or is that a role better left to other organizations and, and perhaps be more, well, Absolutely. And so then that remains the question. Who's there to, to fill that role, if not the WHO, but then it needs to have a budget commensurate with that new responsibility, which to date necessarily materialized. Um, I just wanted to pick up that, that comment you made about being a journalist in this space. And, and you know, as a veteran reporter here, and, and you have a science background, of course, mm -hmm. to what has, have you seen during this unfolding pandemic the challenge that scientists have in terms of communicating their findings and, and the amount of scientific literacy on the part of journalists and, and where that sort of nexus has to lie in terms of effective and accurate communication? Well, I have to say that is one of the few real bright spots that has emerged from this. There have been some people just covering themselves with glory in the way they've been reporting this. I mean, like everybody, I have to pick out Ed Young and Helen Branswell, um, writing for the American press, but, but, and indeed the international press, but uh, there have been lots of other people really doing well. And lots of scientists really going out there um, and, and making the point of trying to communicate with the public, which I have to say was, was a moment of, of sheer panic when I was writing the book. Usually I make a statement in print, I check up with at least two scientists. Mm -hmm. I was getting a lot of email back going, hi Deb, sorry, can't get back to you, really busy. Uh, you know, the scientists were working 24 seven after having rerouted most of their research towards various things having to do with, with COVID. Um, and also were engaging um, in a, a lot of public outbreak, uh, outreach. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Mark Lipsitch, case in point, uh, 
yeah. he was calling me up and helping me with things and, and I've been talking to him for years and eventually he just went Deb can't do this anymore I just you know I'm, I'm writing all these op-eds yeah I think he's been writing for the Boston Globe and that mm -hmm. is great that he's doing that but unfortunately it also meant there were only a few people helping verified yeah. points when I was writing the book. Fortunately, a lot of them were points I had already talked about at length with a lot of scientists over the years. So I was pretty yeah. much okay. Yeah, yeah. No, and of course, it must be very challenging also in the role for the, from the position of someone like Mark Lipsitch, to what extent do you continue your research or do you have to have this responsibility to do public outreach? And, and I'm sure some scientists are less comfortable in, in written or spoken communication than others. And are you getting, does that, does that change the type of information that comes out? Because we're not hearing from all scientists, we're hearing from those who have the most comfort in that space and I think that is something that you know as a scientist and seeing that happen with my peers is, is definitely a challenge as well um, and of course misinformation has been a hugely prominent feature of this pandemic and, and a very depressing one on, on many levels maybe facilitated by social media in some cases and certainly um, perhaps even buttressed through some state-sponsored efforts at agitation um, in, in various political spheres so how damaging has misinformation been for this pandemic? And, and what do you think that journalists, scientists can do to counter that? Um, well, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Um, I, I write for New Scientist. New Scientist is mostly preaching to the crowd, uh, the choir, sorry, uh, preaching to the people who are the type who would go out and read New Scientist. Usually they're fairly sympathetic to science and its aims. Um, a book hopefully will not be similarly limited. I thought, okay, Contribute what you can. This is a moment when I can tell people what I know at a time when they can really hear it. And I think yeah. a lot of scientists have been doing that as well. No information system is, is ever perfect. You know, like on, on, the, on the vaccine front, we're hearing from the scientists who are developing vaccines. Of course, that's going to happen. Um, we're hearing from, as you say, the scientists who are more articulate than others. We all know plenty of unarticulate, inarticulate scientists. You know, they don't go into science because they're good at that. Some, right. There are some really notable exceptions, but, but there are also some people who have trouble. Um, and, you know, maybe that's skewing what we hear. But I think that's why it's important to continue a lot of, you know, meetings among scientists. They don't ever seem to have any problem talking to each other. And as long as we've got <laughs> honest brokers delivering what they have to say to the rest of the world, then I think we'll be getting the right scientific message. As you say, the real concern is with people who go scientists and just dismiss what they're hearing outright because they've been told scientists are, you know, the devil or something. Um, and listen to any conspiracy theory just because conspiracy theories evolve because they appeal to certain psychological traits in a lot of people. Um, they are, you know, they're not constrained by facts, so they can evolve to be as appealing as they need to be to spread, kind of like viruses in that respect. And there have been a awesome. lot of those. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, one which maybe I'm naive, but one which hadn't struck me until I read your book was the idea that people might think that the vaccine industry was uh, was inventing the pandemic as a commercial opportunity. And I just, that blew me away. And, yeah. and maybe more broadly about this incredible situation that we're in where we have vaccine hesitancy against a vaccine that doesn't even exist yet. You know, the data coming out showing that something like one in six Britons and one in six people in the U.S. would probably not take a COVID-19 if it existed because of various concerns. And that just, in this day and age, seemed to be really challenging. We're, we're on the one hand, putting the vaccine as this sort of silver bullet to ending the pandemic. And on the other, we may not even have enough people who are willing to take it. And, and what do you make of that from an information standpoint? Well, the thing is, I think it's, it's wrong to look at it strictly as an information problem. When I talk to risk management people about this, 
Um, they always say, oh, scientists just seem to think that if they just sincerely explain the facts to people, that will bring yeah. them around. And all the psychological research shows that, in fact, it doesn't. You explain global warming to a climate change denier, it will just make them more confirmed to be climate change deniers. Because why is she trying to explain this to me? Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you can't win. Um, there must be a broader answer in establishing trust among communities to begin with. And also, not so much speaking from one community to another. We need to get discussions going within communities, yeah. and we need to have people speaking in terms of, of values and language that they understand. And, and somehow the facts should be able to spread that way as well as from one self-defined group uh, to another. I don't know how you get around that, but I've been actually talking to people about this and that's sort of the take home I'm getting from mm -hmm. them. I mean, I'm a reporter, I'm not an expert myself. I only report what I hear, but what I'm hearing is, mm -hmm. is that we need to be a lot more aware that, you know, these people who are denialists, we see them as being, oh, they're stupid. I know one really prominent scientist who's done a lot of work to promote vaccines, who calls these people dismissively the innumerate because they can't understand his, his necessarily quantitative arguments that he makes. That's really kind of the problem, I think. There's a lot of us and them in these dialogues. They're not dialogues, they're lectures. Um, and, you know, there needs to be more ways to present simple factual evidence that anyone can, can relate to in terms that every group of people can relate to, regardless mm -hmm. of, of what their politics are, or what their personality is. Um, there really has to be more of that. I don't know how you do that. You know, if I did, I'd be writing another book. Who knows? Maybe that'll be the next one. But that's well, a rough no, and I think, you know, you make a very good point about um, the people who are, for example, with vaccine hesitancy, this is not a homogenous group of people either, and treating them as such is, is inaccurate and disrespectful. You know, there are many reasons why people can be um, wary of vaccines. And, and I guess my biggest concern in this particular space with regards to the COVID-19 pandemic is the extent to which it might cloud really important conversations about vaccine safety. We obviously want there to be a safe and effective vaccine. And I, I do worry that um, the rhetoric that's used by some anti-vaccination advocates is making it very difficult to have meaningful debate about vaccine safety in this kind of space. But I don't know, we'll, we'll see how that evolves over time, I guess. Um, but what do you think about this concept of um, the vaccine being the silver bullet to end the pandemic? It's something you hear a lot, you know, oh, we'll have to wait till there's a vaccine. And, and is that the right way we should be thinking about this? Well, first of all, I understand that, that amidst all the, the, the funding and, the, and, the, and the, the rush to get to a vaccine, um, I've been wondering, where is something similar for antiviral drugs? And I actually, I looked around and I, I actually discovered that there are people saying, uh, listen, we're not doing nearly as much for antiviral drugs, and we should be. Um, there have been some good, there's been some very good work done on, on the use of anti-sera um, and artificial antibody um, treatments and, and, and preventive measures um, for this. Um, but, uh, you know, not, there, there were some very promising anti-coronavirus drugs being developed in the wake of SARS. All that research was abandoned a couple of years after SARS was got rid of because for some reason everybody just decided it was not coming back. That's, that, I need to do more digging there. Someone needs to do more digging there. I'm not quite sure. I was told stories about how this happened and I reported them in the book, but yeah, I'd like to know that doesn't strike, it strikes me as being very odd that everybody just gave up on it. And, and the WHO was still saying, look, coronaviruses are a threat and, and yet none of this research was happening. There needs to be more of that. But at the same time, um, the whole business of the silver bullet, I mean, 
that whole thing is leading to this rather regrettable situation we had this week, where it's being reported that Russia has approved for general use a vaccine that apparently has only been through a phase one safety trial, maybe a bit of a phase two, certainly not the big phase three trial with thousands and thousands of people that you need to establish whether it works and in whom it works and when it works and against what. I mean, you know, you need all that before you can release a vaccine. Now, apparently it's not at all clear that it has been approved for general use. The Russians have gone to the WHO to talk about pre-approving it. It's kind of an arcane WHO thing about approving potential medications that you go through. But it's being taken and run with, I think, in a way that is trying to to get some kind of um, kudos for the government um, involved. Uh, they're saying we're the first to get a vaccine. And it's all become kind of a nationalistic thing. Um, mm-hmm. If vaccine is considered to be a nationalistic goal, then that's a real problem because this fact, this virus clearly doesn't care what country it's in. Um, and when we get a vaccine, we're going to need it for everybody. Um, in the book, I outline a situation where, well, let's say the rich countries um, can't afford vaccine. Uh, they make sure their friends uh, who are poor countries get it, but there are a few poor countries that don't. Well, the va- virus is going to keep circulating in those countries and it's going to evolve. And eventually you're going to have a virus on your hands that your vaccine doesn't work against. So obviously this is not in anyone's interests. You know, when, when you say we're all in this together, it's not some Pollyanna airy fairy, you know, I'm a survivor of the 70s. We are all meant to love each other hippie thing. I mean, it really isn't. It's, it, it's true. We are all in this together. We can't protect ourselves without protecting everybody. And I, I worry that with, with vaccines sort of put in this frame of being the silver bullet, the great glorious thing, that, you know, we're going to be the hero scientists that save the world and our people are going to get it first, kind yeah. of that, that we're seeing in some countries. Um, that's just going to undermine everything and it's going to be impossible to get this thing distributed. Inventing a vaccine in many ways is the easy part, um, assuming that there's none of the many problems that we know can arise with a coronavirus. If we get a good vaccine, getting it out there to people is going to be the rough one. I mean, people like Gavi, um, some of the, the Seth uh, Berkeley, the guy who, who runs the uh, organization here in Geneva um, called Gavi that makes sure that countries get um, ordinary vaccines and make sure they, they get the budget to sort of buy in stocks of vaccines. They've done amazing work. It's one of the smartest people I know here. And, and he says that, that, you know, getting it out there, getting the vaccine distributed is the real battle. Um, that's yeah. what I work on. And, you know, looking on it as some kind of nationalist prize, I can't see that helping somehow. No, definitely not. And I think, you know, we talked about it already, this idea of, of the nationalistic impulses that are, are very detrimental to the response effort. And I think vaccines and, and distribution in general of countermeasures, regardless of whether they're antivirals or vaccines, is, is obviously a critical point there. Um, and so, you know, I think thinking more generally about um, the vaccine issue, and, and you, you refer a lot to the parallels with influenza, of course, in the book for very good reasons in terms of manufacturing capacity for vaccines, but also more generally in terms of our understanding of pandemics. You know, there's been a lot of talk about 1918, 1919, and, and how what lessons from that we can bring to this current pandemic. But there's also obviously a lot of differences with influenza and, and how it operates. So to what extent do you think that influenza is a helpful metaphor for understanding our current situation versus actually one that might be a bit misleading? Well, the thing is, it's it's like like anything that is both helpful and misleading. Um, Those are both accurate reflections of the truth. You know, they're two ends of the elephant. Um, We had 
a, a pandemic in 2009 that everybody was worried about because it was H1N1, it was a direct descendant of the 1918 virus. Um, and what everyone forgot was that everyone born before 1957 was probably immune to it. Uh, they didn't actually check that very early. Um, and so they were worried this was going to be pretty nasty because 1918 was, and this, it turns out, was okay because anybody um, born before 1957 are the older people and they're the ones that normally die of flu anyway, uh, so they're going to be immune, and they were. And that's one of the reasons why the 2009 pandemic wasn't that nasty. It only needed a small antigenic change in that surface protein, and that wouldn't have been the case. You know, it, it could have been pretty bad. Um, right now, we have got, in both uh, Europe um, and China, uh, viruses like that circulating in pig herds that have those changes and could go pandemic and are already jumping to people. And, you know, we have no idea what, what their virulence is going to turn out to be. Um, and I mentioned before, wouldn't it be great if we got a, you know, a flu pandemic in the middle of what we're still dealing with COVID-19? That isn't, that is a possibility. Um, one of the problems with flu, of course, is that you handle it in a particular way um, it, it travels very fast. There's, there's no point doing the track and trace containment efforts mm -hmm. that ha the WHO has rightly been promoting from the first with COVID-19. Um, everybody's pandemic plan was for flu because it's like that was the only pandemic they thought could happen. I'm sort of going, do, do they read new scientists? No, they don't. <laughs> I mean, yes, we talk about flu pandemics a lot, but, you know, also other kinds. Um, and the thing is that, you know, if you look at the, at the, at the, at, at the UK's pandemic plan, it doesn't say pandemic plan, it says flu pandemic plan. You know, there's a bit of a mention, I think, in the Canadian plan. That there might be another disease, but let's get on and talk about flu. For good reasons, because we know that that's the one virus that is going to go pandemic. It's what flu does. Um, so we have to be prepared for it. But, hey, you know, we just got a pandemic of something completely different. Um, and, you know, and we sort of went, uh, well, um, we were prepared for this other thing. Uh, okay, you know, obviously it cuts both ways. Uh, I think we kind of need to be grown-ups and you know, read the article to the end and, and, and learn that we need to do a, a lot of different things to prepare for disease threats in general. Flu, certainly. I can't believe that there is currently a lawsuit, you talk about misinformation, being undertaken in the States against the national stockpile of the one antiviral drug we know works, and that's Tamiflu, because people have been doing this systematic misinformation campaign um, and they talking about science journals, they've taken in some prominent ones on this, um, claiming to have science that show it doesn't work. They don't because <laughs> they've got science looking at how it works in seasonal flu and how it works if somebody's dying of viral pneumonia in a pandemic is completely different. Um, and in that case, it works really well. And a lot of countries, including the United States, have stockpiles of this drug, Tamiflu, um, in case there is uh, a flu pandemic. And that is being subjected to legal challenges in the States and I think in Europe as well, because there's an organized bunch of denialists who say the drug doesn't work. I honestly don't know what their problem is. Um, I've tried to understand it. It's it's just a thing that they've latched onto. It's not mm -hmm. true, you know? There are facts showing it's not. But, you know, that we, we've actually got a prepare, preparation there. So one bit of pandemic preparedness that some countries have actually done. And there's actually a group out there campaigning against it. I mean, you sort of feel like throwing up your hands in despair sometimes. It does seem a bit like misplaced energy in the middle of a pandemic to be focusing on something like that when there's areas of, of uh, investigation that need um, energy and attention. Um, but, and on, on that note, you know, I think um, one of the things I thought was so interesting in terms of what you were just saying about 
influenza as the next pandemic is, of course, we all recognize it didn't have to be influenza. The WHO a couple of years ago put disease X on its list of, of threats. You know, they recognize that the next thing could be something unknown. Of course, um, yep. you know, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is, is a new virus, but not certainly an unknown type of virus. Uh, the WHO said SARS-like coronavirus is on that list. And SARS-like coronaviruses. So we knew that the preparation was, yep. was in place in that sense. And yet, you know, we didn't, and you, you talk about in the book also that, that similar beta coronaviruses were discovered in bats in China over the last few years. And yep. scientists raised uh, concerns about the possible transmission to humans and potential, and yet nothing happened. So where's, where's that link missing? Where's the link missing between the scientists and policymakers? And, and who's responsible? You, you say at one point, there's no one's job. So, so whose job should it be? Well, I was talking to David Morans, who's um, Anthony Fauci's right-hand man. He works at NIAID. He knows uh, where all the bodies are buried on, on this kind of issue. And he was saying, it, he basically, I was very encouraged to hear him say the same thing I did. Um, there's no one's job. Um, it's the scientist's job to, to discover the viruses and say, this is what they can do. This is a threat. We are actually putting pandemic risk in the title of the article, just in case you missed it. Um, and what, what else can they do? Um, the uh, Ralph Barracks lab in, in North Carolina went on and went to work on some drugs because nobody else was doing it, even though they're primarily virologists. Um, right. Basically, uh, it, it is no one's job to take those warnings and sit down together and say, okay, what are we going to do? Now, the WHO effectively did that. You mentioned it a minute ago by putting together a list of the viruses they're most worried about, and that did include the viruses like um, what turned out to be COVID-19. Um, so can't say we weren't warned. Um, and, you know, they said we should be working on vaccines for these. We have a roadmap. We should be working on drugs. We should be working on diagnostics. All very good. Lots, lots of person hours were put in. All the top scientists in the world came together and agreed on the priorities. Whose job was it to take that and say, okay, you do this, you do this, you do this, here's the money. Okay, that's what we need. We need some kind of an acting agency, some, some, someone whose job it is to take the warnings and act on them, not just put them out there and hope somebody bites. I mean, they put together um, CEPI, the, the Coalition mm -hmm. for Epidemic uh, Preparedness Innovations, um, which is leading the research now on some of the vaccines and was the only organization that was funding coronavirus vaccines um, when this all hit. It was for MERS, another coronavirus, but at least they were funding some work. That's all that was going on. And that was only set up a couple of years ago. One of the things that was set up in the wake of Ebola um, we have an Ebola vaccine that works because everybody was scared about Ebola possibly being used um, as a biological weapon a few years ago. So a lab in Canada went to work on it, uh, but it was never really developed for the market because there was no money to do it. And it took them an entire year to get that out there and test it in the field during the Ebola pandemic, Ebola epidemic, sorry, of, of 2014. They, they finally got it into the field in 2015. Um, and basically, you know, CEPI was set up to say, okay, we got to do this faster. We got to do this better. Um, we got to put this better up together, you know, more systematically for more viruses. Well, good. You know, they, 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 they took that lesson home, but that was all that was done. And it wasn't really enough because they didn't have, you know, a multi-million dollar effort out there to develop coronavirus vaccines. Yeah. And they could because they'd had the warning, they had the roadmap. The WHO said, we need this stuff. We also need stuff for NEPA. When I talk to scientists, that's the one they tend to say they're worried about. And I've got to say, it's worrying. It's another yeah, thing. I wanted to ask you about that. You mentioned that a few times in the book. So tell, tell, tell us why NEPA particularly scares you. 
Well, um, you know, people I kind agree. Of, Let's be clear. <laughs> good. Yeah, you've been talking to the same people. Well, you were the same people. <laughs> but basically, you know, I, I actually was at a meeting, um, um, uh, the meeting in Vienna that, that the uh, emerging diseases people every, every couple of years, and we were all talking about their own pet diseases and you know, this sort of thing. Uh, I talked to the guys from uh, um, uh, EcoHealth Alliance saying, uh, oh, we found this really interesting um, coronavirus, adapts, it could be the next pandemic. Yeah, this was in 2016. I just want to point this out. Okay, but every one of them, I said, what really scares you, you know, what keeps you awake at night? And they said, oh, Neba. <laughs> I mean, okay. Usually scientists will say, oh, my virus, you know, the one I'm working, no, they're all worried about Nipah. Um, it, it kills upwards of, and when I say upwards, I mean anywhere up to 75% of the people who've got it in outbreaks. So far, it's been very limited because you catch it directly from the bat or from something a bat has contaminated, uh, like pig feed. Um, and, you know, but, but it's moved into Southern India, as you probably know, it's starting to spread between people in respiratory droplets. Where have we heard this recently? That is scary. If it was spreading like Ebola does in shared bodily fluids, that would be bad enough. But respiratory droplets that, you know, we all know now is really hard to control. Flu spreads that way, COVID-19 spreads that way. Um, if this virus learned to do that and did not become less lethal. Uh, yeah, I, I know scientists who just call that civilization ending, and I think they're right. Um, the thing about this is that there is this very worrying belief, which I, I, I haven't come under nearly enough fire for this yet. I would have thought there were some scientists out there. I think they're working so hard they don't have time to read the book. But um, I've been talking to a number of scientists over the years who say, look, this belief out there that if something goes pandemic, it necessarily has to become mild. You know, I was told that once, you know, dead on, straight in the eye, that's okay. If bird flu, which kills 60%, H5N1 kills 60% of the people it infects, ever goes pandemic, it will become milder. How do you know that? Um, well, it, it just has to, and, and some evolutionary rationale is advanced for this. And there are lots of other evolutionary rationales out there. It's not necessarily in a virus's interest to become milder if it learns to spread from person to person very readily. Look at HIV. It's been out there for a while. It's been out there since I think the 1920s is the latest guess. And, um, and certainly since the 1980s, it's been spreading pretty handily and it hasn't gotten any milder yet. Um, mm -hmm. you know, if NEPA really got that one last mutation that allows it to spread between people, um, would it become milder? I don't think we can count on that. You know, we've yeah. discovered that that wouldn't necessarily happen with bird flu when they did the experiment. Um, that is scary. I mean, COVID-19, everybody's going, oh my God, it's turned our world upside down. And I'm going, this is a mild virus. You know, SARS had a 10% fatality rate. COVID's maybe got 1%. Um, half the people over 60 who, who got uh, SARS died. Um, wow. You know, what if that thing had gone pandemic and we were on the edge of it? You know, really, if it had gotten loose, people were telling me, um, the senior people at the WHO were telling me at the time, look, you know, this, this thing's here to stay. If it gets yeah. loose in, in Bombay or, or Manila or somewhere where we just can't control it, um, you know, it's, we're never going to get rid of it. Fortunately, we got lucky and the WHO actually led a very effective campaign on that occasion. And, and we stamped it out with, you know, contact tracing quarantine, same sort of thing we're using on COVID-19. Fortunately, the thing only got spread by people who had symptoms, so it was pretty easy to quarantine people who had it and stop it from spreading. 
and everybody cooperated, everybody played bull. Um, eventually, you know, the Chinese were very open and energetic about it. They, they, it was kind of like this time. First, they tried to deny it was there, but then when it, they couldn't anymore, they launched an incredible campaign to get mm -hmm. it under control, just as they have with COVID-19. Um, and, and wow, when they really go to work on something, they really go to work on something. They got it under control eventually. So did everybody else. And Toronto almost let it get away, but, you know, I speak as a Canadian here, but yeah, uh, they finally got it back under control too. So, okay, we got that one, but wow, I mean, you know, that had 10 times the death rate of COVID-19. Yeah. People don't realize that, that, you know, we're going through an awful lot of disruption for a virus that isn't anything like as bad as a virus could be. Yeah. And I think those biological aspects are so important. You, know, you mentioned the, the lack of transmission of SARS largely before any symptoms arose and, and how yeah. mental that was for containment. And we don't have that here. And I think particularly early on in this pandemic, that was part of the, the challenge in terms of implementing some of these containment measures. The extent of pre-symptomatic transmission wasn't really known. It was hypothesized, but not demonstrated. That confusion and challenge led to a lot of um, difficulty in terms of those early response efforts. Yeah. Um, I just want to come back to the idea that you, you know, about some of those issues. So another example, when you mentioned SARS setting off in, in Bombay or, or another very crowded city, you know, I just think back to July 2014 when the first Ebola case arrived in Lagos and everyone was panicking. That was the worst case scenario in many public health people's eyes of, mm -hmm. okay, you this incredibly deadly infectious disease in one of the world's most dense, densely populated cities with a, a weak health infrastructure. And yet the Nigerians did a phenomenal job of, of tracking, tracing, isolating, developing diagnostic, diagnostic protocols. And I think that just comes back sort of full circle to our earlier part of the conversation about preparedness. So, you know, what are the things that need to be put in place? What would you say need to be the things that we can do now to really focus on um, preventing, say, even the next influenza pandemic, should it strike later this year or next year? Um, well, interestingly, the Nigerians had in place the um, 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 structures and the medical, the medical sort of organization they had to get polio under control. Right. And that was still there. And it was the polio infrastructure that did it. Right now, India is talking about it. It's still got its polio infrastructure. It got mm -hmm. rid of polio a number of years ago. It's kept the infrastructure in place. It's trying to transition that into a general public health uh, monitoring and, 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 and implementation agency. I think that gives us our clue. What we need uh, is, is we need surveillance. That is my cat, by the way. <laughs> you may have been hearing her. Um, we need surveillance, surveillance, surveillance. We, do, we need to know what's out there and we need to be on top of it. The reason the Nigerians were able to get that under control is because they had that structure for polio in place. You know, um, kitty, go away. Uh, we, we, the world needs more cats, clearly. Uh, I thought I'd get that in there. Yeah, right, she's gone away. It's great. <laughs> um, no, what we need is surveillance. What we really need is to get out there and find out what diseases people have and where the novelties are coming in. Um, and that's what we don't have. Um, we, we really need much, much more work to do that. And we need to totally retool, I think, the WHO to really spearhead an effort to do global surveillance. There are some scientists who want to go out there and just randomly characterize every virus that's out there. I think that would be an enormous waste of money, a number of scientists do. Um, basically going out and seeing what's in people, developing good diagnostics, going into places that are hotspots of emerging diseases. Um, I understand India is gonna cut down an old growth forest and putting coal mines. That was the latest um, announcement from that government. Um, cutting down a forest. I mean, the word bats comes to mind here. They have fruit bats. Those fruit bats have NEPA, among other things. Okay, 
is anybody talking about going in there and, and doing regular high-tech surveillance of exactly what viruses people there are carrying? We could do that for remarkably mm -hmm. low cost. We have the technology. Nobody's ever really organized it. We could go in and do that. We could do it in southern China where we've already had a track record of, of, of coronaviruses jumping from, from insectivorous bats. We could uh, go to places where people are in contact with species like the various bats and, and a few others that carry a lot of these viruses and just regularly monitor what they've got and, and catch things early. Um, that shouldn't be difficult. And the mm -hmm. WHO isn't set up to do it. It certainly doesn't have the money to do it. Somebody needs to do it. And I think doing it globally and together is the way forward on that. And of course, you know, preventing those initial spillover events from becoming epidemics and then pandemics is really the key and, and by far the most cost-effective strategy, of course. But we do need to also think about the response infrastructure for when there are cases of these diseases. And, and I think one of the really startling things about COVID-19 is how it has sort of blown out of the water these assumptions that it's only weak health systems that, that suffer from epidemics. You know, we've seen how some of the highest income countries in the world have mm -hmm. failed with their COVID-19 responses for various reasons. And I think that, you know, what are your thoughts on, on, on bridging those two kind of schools of thought in terms of this idea of health system strengthening being so focused on lower and middle income countries, perhaps erroneously, when really we need to be thinking more holistically about what pandem pandemic preparedness really is? Yeah, I, I really love the fact that the UK put together a rapid response team that could be in any poor country in the world within uh, 24 hours of, 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 of an epidemic being announced to, to help out. And excuse me, uh, who's got the highest death rate in Europe? Um, you know, that when it came to its own response, it turned out that the, the, the top was just dithering. There needs to be clear plans. There needs to be people who are not political in charge of them. Uh, they need to be the scientific experts. Um, there needs to be a lot of thinking and planning and investment in, in, in response at all levels. But I think, you know, what some countries, notably your own, has shown is that there needs to be leadership at the top. Um, yeah. You know, uh, in fact, I, I'm, I'm currently residing uh, in the uh, European Union and, you know, uh, countries there were all supposed to pull in the same direction and to begin with. You know, they were having trouble doing that, too. I think this has taught us where the, 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 the problems are. Um, obviously, you know, countries are going to stand by their independence in, in many respects. That's a good thing. But we need to work together because if one country is doing a bad job and multiplying up a huge viral load and the country next door is doing a great job, um, it's not going to really help because that huge viral load from the country next door is going to spill over. We can really only do this if, if we coordinate what we do. You know, New Zealand's done a fantastic job, but it really helps to be an island, you know, in this yeah. case. Um, oh, and, and to have extremely enlightened leadership. One mustn't, you know, suggest that that was not a factor. But, you know, it helps to, you know, not be bordered by people who are not doing as good a job as you are. Everybody should see that it's in their interest to coordinate what they do with other people and to just let the scientists take the lead because they, they tend to agree with each other a lot. You know, they tend to say, no, look, we need to do this. And we need to sit down before it happens and decide who's going to do that, what our um, options are, uh, how we're going to deal with the possibility that what we thought we were going to have to do might not be quite the right thing. Like we were prepared to uh, not do containment, we were prepared to do um, social distancing because we were prepared for a flu pandemic. Nobody had thought to beef up our capabilities in, in tracking and tracing. Um, Britain, I think, still doesn't have an app. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just been incredibly disorganized in a number of major countries. Um, 
and and you know we should all sit down now and organize that why not you know a lot yeah. of a lot of viruses that haven't that have just jumped to humans that aren't that well used to us in fact even a pandemic flu when it's just getting started um might not spread so fast that that containment isn't an option we could do tracking and tracing and, and quarantine and all that good stuff early on in in even a flu pandemic if that's the way the virus is behaving and so we need agencies that know about all these possibilities are nimble on their feet have got the top scientific advice as it becomes available can change track as as it becomes necessary i mean you know anybody who specializes in organizing institutional response to anything knows that these are the factors you need to continue to consider nobody's done that for pandemics you know mm -hmm. is there a pandemic response agency in any country there, there are health agencies there's health ministries there's you know the the ranking laboratory that that deals with these viruses uh they all weigh in there's the chief scientist who might be a physicist god help us um you know there's not a pandemic response agency most places and not one that's sufficiently funded and equipped and advised by people by the way who are not virologists people who right. are ex experts at, at, at risk assessment at risk communication the who is starting to bring in social scientists to help it after it, it made serious mistakes in some cases in trying to communicate risk to people um, in West Africa during Ebola. It's starting to take those things on board. Uh, when it retooled itself as a, an emergency response agency, it had to bring in people from the humanitarian response community. Traditionally, the WHO only hires MDs. And it started hiring people who gasped but didn't even have doctorates, but who were brilliant at, at emergency response. Um, it was a rough learning curve, I'm told. But uh, Bruce Aylward at the WHO um, told me it was like trying to teach a penguin to fly. You know, <laughs> then I don't know if you saw this in the book, he said, but then we threw it off the, threw it off the cliff and damned how well the thing flew. <laughs> um, you can evolve institutionally to deal with risks you know are coming. Um, as long as, as you're a broad church and you bring everybody in and anybody who's likely to be a stakeholder in this um, has got a stake in it. I, I suppose there is a case to be made for bringing organizations that traditionally might be against vaccines or might not trust science in on the planning stages of things too. So they'll know what the risks are and, and, and why this is, you know, in their interests. Um, all I can say is, is that, you know, expecting a small elite to do the right kind of planning and then everybody to listen to them is probably not going to work. Um, and we need to find a way past that. Yeah, and I think so just to, to wrap up and, and maybe going a little bit deeper into that, that thought, you know, we've talked a lot about these, these past examples of epidemics and pandemics and this, this so-called sort of cycle of neglect, you know, neglect and response, neglect and response. Oh. Totally. How do we break that cycle? How do we come out of this? And, and clearly WHO is on board and have been for a long time. So, so they're, they're really driving this from a multilateral perspective. How do we convince governments and, and philanthropists and the big funders out there to say, actually, you know what, now is how we change our approach and we're going to start investing in preparedness moving forward? Gosh, let's have a pandemic. That should do it. Um, <laughs> One would think. If COVID-19 doesn't do it, I frankly despair. Um, we should, you know, sit people down and say, it could have been worse. And yeah. our response could have been a whole lot better. And just about every country you could name, the possible exception of New Zealand. But, you know, almost everybody could have done a better job of this. Okay, let's seriously take stock of this. Let's, let's see where we made the mistakes. Let's put money into this. You know, I think where there is money, there is, it builds up an establishment. It builds up a bunch of people whose jobs it is to do this. Um, 
We need institutional frameworks. We need networks of experts. We don't need more hierarchies. We need networks of experts around the world to be talking to each other and, and things, things come out of networks. We've got a very complex problem here. You solve complex problems with networks, not with hierarchies. We don't need one guy at the top telling us what we need to do. We need a lot of different people saying their piece and having ways of coming up with joint solutions to various problems, just identifying the problems for a start, um, that everybody then feels they have a stake in. I mean, those are just the general principles of management that I think anybody in private industry probably is, is starting mm -hmm. to become aware of. Um, we need more of that in the public sphere and we need more of it in, in the public health sphere. I mean, public health, as you know, has been really neglected by governments. I mean, ever since we all decided we just defeated infectious disease back in the 70s. We haven't, um, and we'd known for some time that this was coming, but basically, you know, to that, that what we were talking about a minute ago, that, that it's nobody's job to deal with this, has, has left us, you know, people like me waving our arms, journalists can scream, scientists can scream, it's nobody's job to do anything. We need to create networks of agencies in different countries that talk to all the other agencies in the different countries. So we set up a kind of a community globally of people who are used to dealing with this, who go and visit each other's laboratories, who, who know how their surveillance systems work, who can swap advice on how to make things work, who can advocate for more money for preparedness with, with governments. Um, I think as a result of this, what we really need more than anything else is, is, is that kind of global network that's sufficiently funded to continue to face off these problems. It's gonna be some little local agency in some unlikely country um, who spots the next outbreak? Yep. You know, it, it, it was probably some doctor in a Wuhan hospital who said, hang on, I've been getting an awful lot of pneumonia lately. It's testing negative for flu, but I don't know what it is. Um, and then there was actually a system which would have allowed that doctor to tell Beijing directly. And the local <laughs> people told them to turn it off. That kind of system, if it's everybody's job, if they've got something weird to tell some central authority directly, so local people who are kind of worried about, you know, the economic impact can't stop them. That was a really good system the Chinese set up. I think we should all have that. I think it's a shame the local people just decided to tell their doctors to disregard it for whatever local political reasons they may have had, who knows. But if we all had the people whose job it is to monitor these diseases, talking to each other, issuing alerts, you know, there's, there's the online bulletin board called Promit, where if there's a problem, you know, we find out about it. They were among the first to let everybody know about COVID. They were the first to let everybody know about SARS. They've, mm -hmm. they've done a lot of things like that. More of that, but on an official level where everyone's talking to everybody. Um, I was talking to an economist at the University of Toronto um, who also wrote a crash book during lockdown about COVID, who also thinks we need a way of getting past uh, um, national sovereignty in the matter of dealing with disease. Uh, he uses an example of uh, the Bretton Woods Agreement rather than arms treaties, but it's interesting that he's thinking the same way. And he says that pandemics are primarily an information problem. Brilliant idea. I wish I'd included that in my book. I didn't. <laughs> but, uh, but he's right. They are. Um, preventing a pandemic is primarily an information problem. We need people talking to people in institutions that can get things done. Well, yes, I couldn't agree more. And, and certainly I, I hope that these are the types of lessons that will continue. And I hope that all of the world leaders uh, read your book and at least use these principles moving forward. Um, in any case, it's been an enormous pleasure to discuss these issues with you today. And um, thank you so much for writing the book. I really enjoyed reading it. And uh, yes, keep us all posted on the next one.
Well, my pleasure entirely to have been here, and uh, yeah, I'll have to think about the next one. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcast at c-span.org.